Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Bob Dylan and Maggie's Farm live at the Newport Folk Festival from July 1965. We're playing that because I've got the brilliant pleasure to welcome Jonathan Taplin here today. Jonathan was tour manager for Bob Dylan, the band, producer of major films such as Mean Streets, uh, The Last Waltz, the creator of the internet's first video on-demand service and uh, writer. Now, Jonathan's got a superb book, which is a memoir of the American Cultural Revolution from 1963 to 89, which is a great history of the American scene in that period, but also shows how Jonathan was integral and at the heart of that. Uh, Welcome so much to The Strange Brew, Jonathan. Good to be here. Brilliant. Just incredible to think that um, so many pivotal moments that you were at, you must have just been so young, which was Bob Dylan going electric at Newport. How did that happen at such a a young age for you? So I was 18. I was, I had graduated high school and I was about to go to Princeton University. I was a big folk music fan. I had been, spent a lot of time at the Club 47 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I decided to go to the Newport Folk Festival, and a friend of my brother's was a guy named Paul Clayton, who was a famous ethnomusicologist, collector of folk songs. And he got me a backstage pass and introduced me to Jeff and Maria Muldor, who were part of the Jim Queskin Jug Band. And the Jug Band needed a road manager for the weekend, and I volunteered. And then they took me over to meet their manager and their manager was Albert Grossman. And Albert Grossman was the manager of Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary, Odetta, Paul Butterfield, pretty much everybody important in the folk rock world, right? Yeah. So I think I was just in the right place at the right time in the sense that Bob Dylan decided on a Saturday afternoon after hearing a story about how Alan Lomax had tried to unplug the Butterfield Blues Band uh, from a workshop that afternoon, because he didn't think electric music should be played at a folk festival. And Bob just, I think, decided, well, I'm going to go play electric music on the closing night, Sunday night, and see what happens. And so they put together a band very quickly with the Butterfield Room Band Rhythm Section and Mike Bloomfield, who'd played on Like a Rolling Stone, and Al Cooper, who had played on Like a Rolling Stone, and rehearsed a little bit on a Saturday night. And then we did a sound check uh, on Sunday afternoon. And then they played on Sunday night. And needless to say, as you probably well know, the reaction of the folkies was not great. No. <laughs> they booed. <laughs> was it shocking to you or were you very open? No, because I I loved Like a Rolling Stone, which was had been on the radio for almost a month right. at that point. It shouldn't have been a huge surprise, except to the folkies who thought they were defending something. Bob had already gone electric yeah. a year before, you know, and 
you know, Highway 61 is an electric tune. And, and so it wasn't that big a surprise to me, but it was a surprise to me that the reaction was so negative. You know, I, as I write in the book, the music was not very well rehearsed. I mean, the band was pretty loose. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, when you listen to that track you just played, it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty driving and, uh, you know, in retrospect, although the mix was not as good off the stage as it is on that record. <laughs> From that, you built up a, a relationship with Albert then. Yeah. I mean, he became kind of my mentor. And I, I started to work on weekends from going from Princeton to work for the Jug Band. And then I worked for Judy Collins. And then eventually I started working for the band. Then that led to taking Bob Dylan and the band to the Isle of Wight, which was my first venture to the UK with a music group. Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, most pivotal moments for me in, in music history was Otis Redding at Monterey, you know, when he talks about the love crowd. Yes. You went to Monterey with Albert then. Yeah, I mean, you know, quite frankly, Otis was not that well known by the kind of San Francisco hippie crowd. He was well known by the musicians and, of course, the Marquis and Booker T. In terms of musicians... They all knew Steve Cropper. They knew Duck Dunn. They knew these guys were just killer players. But Otis came out, and I've, I've never seen anyone win the heart of a crowd so fast with that song, Try a Little Tenderness. It was just, it was just magical. Yeah. And from that point on, he had a huge following among young white kids, you know? I mean... You know, the saxophone sound had been uh, kind of in the black radio kind of place and wasn't being played on alternative rock radio. And then it does. And then, of course, unfortunately, after Otis died, then Dock of the Bay comes out and becomes number one song of the year. I, I just think that, you know, Otis was just beginning he was so young and he was just beginning to show people what he could do and it it was the deepest tragedy that that airplane crash happened there's a quote in the book when you were talking to is it is it bob weir of grateful dead yeah he said i thought i saw god on stage thank you so much yeah right now thank you so much we like to Take time now and drop the tempo one more time. This is a song that I want to dedicate to all the miniskirts. You know, the song goes something like this. My favorite. My dig. Oh, she may be weary. Them young girls, they do get weary Wearing that same old miniskirt dress Yeah, yeah, yeah But when she gets weary You try your little tenderness Yeah, yeah 
Na 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 
later in 1967, you travelled up to Woodstock with Albert then. And that was the period where Bob Dylan was recovering from his motorcycle accident, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was a period of, of what musicians called woodshedding, meaning that you take you take a few tunes and you try and kind of learn how to play together. And, you know, Bob had had a bad motorcycle accident and then, but he started to write a lot of songs, but he wasn't recording and he wasn't out on the road. And so Albert said to him, well, you should put those songs down on tape and I'll get the music publisher to get them out to other musicians and they can record them and you'll be earning some money. You know, so Manfred Mann did one of them and others. And so that's how it started. And, it would, you know, the band had rented this very funky house outside of Woodstock, which was later called Big Pink, but it was just an ugly Big Pink <laughs> house. And in the garage, in the basement, they built a little recording studio. And Garth had a two-track studer recorder and about three mics. And that was it. They just started making music. And out of that came what is known as the basement tapes. Also out of that began, the band began to think about recording for themselves. I mean, Robbie wrote The Wait and they did that. And, and Richard sang one of Bob's songs, I Shall Be Released. And, you know, it just began, okay, the band could make their own record. They were, they were called the Hawks still at that time, but that was really, and then they came down to New York to play a Woody Guthrie tribute in January of 68. And that's when Robbie said to me, look, I think we're going to go out on the road. And do you want to be the road manager? And I said, yeah, of course. And that didn't happen because after recording music from Big Pink, Rick Danko got in a bad car accident and broke his neck. And so they didn't go out on the road until you know, the spring of 69. And those basement tapes were such a, a, a great cross-fertilizations between the Hawks or the, the band and and Bob Dylan on tracks like Tears of Rage. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was a, a perfect marriage of, of kind of learning in the sense that I think Bob was teaching the band about a kind of old-timey music of kind of American traditional music. And the band were teaching Bob a little bit about what makes a good rock and roll song. And so it worked out really well. And of course, for Robbie, I think Robbie absorbed a lot of Bob's kind of poetic intention and began to bring that into his own writing.
second album the basic plan was to basically go from what was often a quite a cold woodstock to more sunny la yeah i mean woodstock in january is like 20 degrees below zero it's it's not fun (laughs) (laughs) and so the idea to go to california and rent a house and kind of reconstruct big pink but in a nice place we rented Sammy Davis Jr.'s house in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, it had a separate pool house, which we put up a lot of moving blankets and acoustical rubber and stuff to kind of muffle the sound so that neighbors wouldn't complain. And then we just started to play. It was perfect because the band loved to just be in a room and the, and the actual recording board and the recorder were all in the same room as the musicians. And so there was this kind of perfect synergy and, and a wonderful producer named John Simon who who was able to kind of pull it all together and 
There was no engineer. There were just, there was no time clock. You know, normally in those days, you go into a recording studio and you knew it was costing you $800 an hour. And so you were kind of rushing things to get done. And there was none of that. So it was perfect. And the songs weren't bad, to say the least. I mean, the night they drove old Dixie down, I mean, it's just an on all time great song. So you've got that combination of the freedom and space to record, but the quality of songwriting is just outstanding. Absolutely. Robbie wrote that song for Levon, obviously. Yeah. For me, it was a real kind of earthquake hearing it for the first time when it was done because I had been a liberal kid who was involved in the civil rights movement pretty deeply. And so I had a distrust of white Southerners' intention. And this was a way of thinking about Levon and Levon's roots in a very different way. And I realized that, you know, Levon's dad was a dirt farmer. I mean, he was a poor farmer. And yet Levon's dad loved Sonny Boy Williamson, loved, you know, Muddy Waters. And Levon loved that Black music almost more than anything. He certainly loved it more than country music. This notion that it was just simple, it was a white and black Southerners, was all complicated. <laughs> and, and I think that song, which is about pride and about working men and everything, is, gives you a sense of that. Of, it's not so simple. There's a brilliant story in The Magic Years, which talks about when Robbie Robertson was ill before a show at the Winterland. If you hear it, you wouldn't believe it, but it just sounds almost magical. So the band had been recording the second album for almost two and a half months, straight through. And then we went up to Winterland to play the very first public unveiling of the band as as a group, not as Bob Dylan's backup group, but as their own unit. And we arrive in San Francisco and Robbie has 103 fever and takes to his bed and can't keep any food down. And he's just like horrible. And so the first show was, we were going to play three shows, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And the first show on Thursday afternoon, we go over and do a sound check without Robbie. But the assumption is somehow he's going to rally and it's going to be okay. We come back to the hotel and he is just like, I can't do this, man. And so, so Bill Graham is there. Albert is there. Everybody says, uh, you know, Bill Graham says, we can't cancel. And by this time, <laughs> the, one of the opening bands, the Ace of Cups, is already on stage. And it was like, you can't cancel. And so Bill Graham says, maybe he needs a hypnotist. And, and, and by that time, everybody was so desperate. <laughs> sure. So this literally in 25 minutes, this little man in a black suit shows up and proceeds to hypnotize Robbie and give him all these incantations while he's under like your your stomach will feel as smooth as a mountain lake and your head will be feel as cool as as an icy breeze. And you know, all these things. And eventually he brings him out of the thing and he says to him, as he bring him out, he's saying, whenever you hear the word grow, you're going to feel these wonderful feelings in your body. And so 
Robbie came out of it and he kind of, it's okay. And he said, hmm, maybe I can play. And so we got a police escort to Winterland and Robbie played and he played pretty well for a guy who had been 103 temperature two hours ago. When we came off stage, he and Richard and I were sitting in the limousine on the way back and Richard, Robbie said to Richard, and the way the hypnotist was placed off stage was he was right behind Richard's piano, <laughs> right behind a speaker. And Robbie was over another 10 feet away from him. And Robbie said, boy, between songs, did you hear that guy yelling grow all the time in his ear? <laughs> Richard said, no, I never heard a thing. You know, somehow he had tuned into a special frequency in Robbie's head. It was amazing.
as we discussed at the start, one of the key themes of the magic years is just pivotal moments in not just music history, but just the, the culture of America. And one of those key moments was Woodstock. You were there with, with the band and I've spoken to Melanie before and she described how she was uh, whisked off in a helicopter. And I think in, in your case, that was the same too. Yeah, we got picked up in Woodstock. And of course, Bethel, where the festival was, was another 40 miles down the road. And I will never forget, it was a kind of rainy day, on and off rain. And we came over this hill in this helicopter and looked down below us. And there was 300,000 people in a pasture. And it was, to me, it was like a biblical Cecil B. DeMille Egyptians fleeing. (laughs) It was just so big. I mean, I'd never seen a crowd that size. It was quite uh, remarkable. I do say that in the book that I don't think the band rose to the moment quite as well as others, because when you're playing to 300,000 people, the thing that really works is like a great guitar solo. Yeah, That's why the Jimi Hendrix moment is so remarkable, or the Sly and the Family Stone moment is so remarkable, or even, you know, Neil Young doing his guitar solo in Ohio. It's just unique, but the band doesn't play that way. They're more like a chamber orchestra of harmonies, and Robbie didn't play long, flashy solos. And so you musicians all loved it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to be the moment where everybody said, oh, this is the greatest group in the world. But Woodstock acted as the inspiration for the Isle of Wight Festival over here and and the idea to get Bob to come over to the UK? Yeah. Literally two weeks after Woodstock, uh, Albert got an offer for a lot of money for Bob and the band to come and play a set. And Bob said, okay, let's do it. I mean, he'd been going out during the course of that summer occasionally with us on the road, just kind of appearing as a secret guest star just surprised guest. So I knew he was interested in seeing if he could play live, but this was, this was serious. And as I say in the book, you know, the night before we were in the, at this big manor house where Bob was staying and the Beatles arrived in a helicopter. It was just like a scene out of hard days night. And I mean, Paul didn't come, but John, George and Ringo came with their wives and we had a, wonderful time together and ate and drank and they came to the rehearsal and then they they jammed a little bit afterwards and then they came to the show so it was big time you know you you're playing for the Beatles it's you you know you got to be good and it was great you know whereas in 66 at Albert Hall in London they got booed yeah for the electric music that famous moment where someone yells, Judas. Then they they played the same music in 69 and everybody just loved it. So something had changed. You know, people had gotten over the the anger uh, about leaving folk music behind.
Next, we have Don't Do It from Rock of Ages by the band. Their version of the Marvin Gaye track there is just an absolutely brilliant live version and a track that they kind of made their own. You know, this was a song in which they really got to go back to their roots as a bar band. You know, I mean, in, in, this is the kind of music they would have played when they were Levon and the Hawks playing in little clubs in Jersey. But for one thing that I always liked is it gave Robbie a chance to really stretch a little bit in terms of a guitar solo. And he's very modest and he doesn't like to show off very much, but he was willing to really let it rip that time. And And of course... Everybody knew we were recording it for a live album, so everyone played at the the best, and Levon singing is so amazing in that, and the harmonies in the chorus are great, and just the whole, the beat underneath it is so perfect. I mean, it's like Levon's drumming is extraordinary. And do you think that that was one of the peaks of the band, and then the year or two after, things just weren't quite the same? Yeah, I think that was the peak, quite honestly. Yeah. Because the next year, things began to really slow down. And Levon and Richard and Rick, to some extent, both began to dabble in harder drugs. And that made life very hard. And for me, it was like I felt I had to move on. It was not, it was not fun anymore. Yeah. You know, I think secretly Robbie was not having a great time with it either. And they didn't play many gigs that year. And it wasn't until they came out to California in early 74 when Bob decided to go and do a big tour when they they did Planet Waves and then they, they went on the tour 74. Yeah. Then everybody kind of got themselves in shape because that was an amazing, important tour. But then after that, it it kind of dissipated even more. Don't you do it, don't do it, don't you break my heart. 
And we talked earlier about the Beatles. You'd had quite a bit of contact with George Harrison over that period. I think you describe in the book that by the, the fall of 1970, George actually came over to, to Woodstock. You actually developed a more of a relationship over the, the next year or two as well? Yeah, I, he had invited me after the Isle of Wight to come to his house, Friar Park. So I had gone and visited with him and Patty for a few days after the Isle of Wight concert. Uh, then we stayed in touch. And he, of course, knew and respected Bob a lot. And he began to kind of pull away from the Beatles in the sense that he wanted very much to record his own tunes. And he was always restricted to just getting two tunes on any given Beatles album. So he felt he had been writing a lot and, and he felt like he should do his own album. So he came to New York and started recording with Phil Spector. And then in early 71, in the spring, he came up to Woodstock to play with Bob and, and to you know, hang out with the band. And, and he stayed at my house for a night. And he told me that Ravi Shankar had told him about this situation in East Pakistan and how desperate it was. And it was, there was a huge famine going on and, and there was a revolution going on. And it was just a horrible situation. And, and nobody in America was paying any attention to it at all. And so George said that he wanted to do this concert. And the obvious thing was to get the biggest hall we could get, which was Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And it just so happened that there was a Sunday, the first day of August in 71, that we could get it. So that was 50 years ago that we were planning this. So we booked it and we booked the night before so we could come in and set up and do a, a rehearsal. Then George just started calling his friends. I mean, he called Ringo first and Ringo said yes. And then he called Klaus Foreman to play bass and Leon Russell to play piano and Billy Preston to play organ. And then he got Eric Clapton to play guitar. And then after he had the band together, he added Jim Keltner as the drummer and then asked Bob Dylan if he would play too. And Bob said yes. So the, the whole thing came together very quickly. And everybody showed up in New York a week early, with the exception of Eric. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had a bit of a drug habit at the time, to say the least. Yes. And every time they would go to pick him up to put him on an airplane, his girlfriend would come out and say he's too sick to travel. And that went on for three days till the point where George just got up, said, well, okay, we'll have to get another guitar player. And, and we hired Jesse Ed Davis, who had played for Taj Mahal to be the, the lead guitar player. And I called Apple in London and said, you can tell Eric we don't need him anymore. And then, of course, he said, well, what do you mean that? I'm coming. <laughs> and then he got on the plane. <laughs> so that, that made all the difference then. Yeah. And a, a great night as well. A, a great night and a great show. Yeah. It was a fabulous show. I mean, it was actually two shows. Yeah. There was an afternoon show where everybody was a little nervous. I mean, you have to imagine that George had never played any of those tunes in front of a live audience. Things like Here Comes the Sun and, and, you know, like classic songs. He'd never gotten to play them. And the last time he had played in front of a live audience had been in 1966 when 
as he described it to me, it wasn't really like playing music. You just would walk out on the stage and the screaming was so loud, you couldn't possibly hear anybody's harmonies. You had no idea if you're completely off key. You're not even sure you're in, in rhythm. He said it was horrible. It was just a useless experience. So this was, for him, it was wonderful. incredible story in the magic years is when you were called down to the south of France to see the Rolling Stones when they were recording Exile on Main Street. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'd, I'd gotten a reputation as a pretty good tour manager and the Stones' previous tour, which had been in 69, had ended in a complete disaster with Altamont. Yeah. So they wanted to try and rethink how they did their tour. So they auditioned me to be their tour manager. You know, I had just gone through Bangladesh. And even though we got Eric to America, 
getting him on stage was like a real struggle. Yeah. And so I went to France. I'm, you know, went to the villa that Kate had in, in Saint Jean Capra. And, you know, the meeting was set for one o'clock and nobody showed up. And, you know, by three, Mick came in. And by six, Keith still had not emerged. And when he did emerge, you know, all the classic junkie signals of guys scratching their neck. And it was just, it was so obvious he was completely out of it. And I told their manager after that I had to decline, even though they never offered me the job, but I just said, I don't want to take myself out of the running for this. So they finished the album, came to Los Angeles, and Mick's assistant, Chris O'Dell, who was a girl who was a friend of mine, called me one day and said, look, they're, they're trying to figure out a cover, and they love all those covers that you did with the band, and can you help them? And, and so just as I was going out the door, I, I grabbed this book called The Americans by Robert Frank, which is a, one of the great photography books of all time. It was a did in 1955, a tour across the United States. And there are all these classic shots of cowboys next to jukeboxes or black choirs singing or, you know, someone kneeling, a preacher kneeling by the side of the Mississippi River. It's just, and the album seemed so American to me, Exile on Main Street and everything. And it was just, so I took the book and I said to Mick, everybody knows what the Rolling Stones looked like. Why don't you just put one of these pictures on the cover and put Exile on Main Street, the Rolling Stones, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you don't have to have pictures of yourself. Everyone knows what you look like. So he started looking through the book and he said, well, this is amazing. These photographs are incredible. Let's get this guy to take our picture. <laughs> I said, well, no, that's not the idea. I don't even know if this guy's still alive. He said, oh, I'm sure he's alive. You can find him. And then he had an E-Day fix. You know, he, was, he wanted a picture taken by Robert Frank. So it was my job to go find Robert Frank, which eventually I did. <laughs> that was quite a bit of a process to get the final cover. Oh, <laughs> it was an incredibly egregious process, but Robert Frank ended up, making a brilliant cover. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, Mick fell in love with him so much that he hired him to do a film of the tour, which is the notorious Cocksucker Blues, yeah. which has never seen the light of day because it's so outrageous.
And our next track is also the Rolling Stones, this time Jumping Jack Flash. And that's because it's one of the key tracks in Mean Streets. And obviously, without you, Mean Streets may not have happened because you were the, the key producer and support to Marty Scorsese at a very pivotal moment in his film career, really, because he was Mean Streets really is his kind of first proper film isn't it? And you had a, a key hand in, in making that happen. Yeah. I had left the music business, you know, kind of feeling like slightly burned out from the whole thing. I'd made some money in it and I went out to Hollywood and I, I was so naive. I was like 23 or 24 that I didn't know you weren't supposed to put your own money into movies. Hmm. Out here, they have a phrase called OPM, other people's money. Uh, but nobody told me about OPM. So Marty had a script. I had been introduced to him by a mutual friend. He loved music. I went and saw his student films. I loved his student films. And so I just took a, a leap of faith and I got a friend of mine to put up half the money. So we each put in $250,000 and we just made this movie. We had no distribution. We had nothing. It was totally insane. But Fortunately, Marty made such a brilliant movie that we were able to sell it and get our money back. And, you know, I'm still earning money from it 50 years later, or 40 years later. So it worked out great. You had some difficulties in relation to that track, though, Jumping Jack Flash, because of Alan yeah. Klein, didn't you? Yeah. So I had worked with Alan Klein on Bangladesh, right? He was the Beatles manager, as well as being the Stones manager. Yeah. And he's kind of a rough character. So he gave me permission to use the track on the proviso that he could look at the movie and pull the track if he didn't like the movie. And the idea that Alan Klein had some kind of taste to decide that wasn't that Mick Jagger could pull the track. It was that he, Alan Klein, could personally pull the track out. So I was desperate and I went along with that and figuring that Somehow we'd, we'd talk him out of doing anything stupid. And that track, I think that track makes the movie. Yeah. That entrance of De Niro into that bar with the red lights and the slow in slow motion against Jumping Jack Flash, it says all you need to say about this wild Johnny Boy character. Yeah. It just nails him. You, you, this guy is wild. That's his entrance, and it's just like, holy cow. And it worked so perfectly. And of course, Marty understands how to use source music in movies better than anybody in the world. Yeah. And he's done it his whole career. He's hardly ever had a, a traditional movie score in his movies. It's all stuff off the radio or whatever. And he really nailed it. So it was basically that all the, the tracks that were used in, in that film his vision and, and then did he sort of say what he wanted and then you had to go out and try and yeah. make that happen. Yeah. My job was to go secure the, the rights to them. And there were some, you know, some important songs and there were some obscure songs.
Our next song, it really should be more widely known. It's the Alpha Band and Interviews. So the Alpha Band came out of the Rolling Thunder live shows. You have had a role in, in terms of getting them together and into the studio. Right. So the Alpha Band, to me, was one of those extraordinary things that somehow just didn't quite come together. It should have. They were all playing on Rolling Thunder with Bob, and it was really T-Bone Burnett and Stephen Souls and David Mansfield and a rhythm section. And when Rolling Thunder was over, they said that they wanted to make, do become a band. So like the band at Big Pink, we went down to a little town outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, called Tezuki. And they just practiced and, and they, T-Bone had a lot of songs. Stephen Souls had some songs. They put together a set of about 15 songs, all of them original. And then we booked a little club in this town in Tezuki. And I'll tell you, Jason, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Within a week, you could not get into this club. It was so jammed. It was the hottest place to be. And they played so brilliantly. And so yeah. after two weeks of playing, I said, I think we can get a record deal. So I invited this guy, Roger Birnbaum, who worked for Clive Davis, to come down uh, and hear him. And he came down and he literally left in the middle of the first set and called Clive Davis from a pay phone. There were no mobile phones then. <laughs> and said, whatever you have to do, get a private jet and get your ass down here and see this band. And so he came the next night and he heard it. And he, he, when it was over, we were in the dressing room. And he says, I'm signing you guys. And it was like, we woke up the next morning with a huge advance Everything, it was like, well, this rock and roll stuff is not so hard, you know? <laughs> and then they recorded the album. The album was pretty good. And then there was so much hype around them that the Doobie Brothers asked them to be their opening act. And that was the mistake we made because it was a stadium tour and it was the Doobie Brothers audience. And this, as you know, well, from interviews, this is not... The Doobie Brothers. Mm. This is something very different and kind of a cross between Bob Dylan and John Coltrane. And, you know, it's it's yeah. it's weird music. And it, it worked brilliantly in that little club. It didn't work that well in an 8,000-seat stadium with people waiting for the Doobie Brothers to come on. And so then T-Bone <laughs> took to turning his back to the audience and playing just to... <laughs> and it just all it went down the hill from there <laughs> the first interview is that of a wrestler who's the made a deal to buckle and show in the basement of the empire state building and he's wearing his bronze and gray belt with an atomic arm lock on a lounge lizard at the Spanish steps And there were Ferrari automobiles Sitting in the ground 50 million years ago And there were James Brown records Sitting in the ground 
My view is that The Last Waltz is probably the greatest live document, especially as a film. It seemed that perfect combination where you've got Ban, Dylan, many of the people that you've come across over the previous decade, and then you've got the film side with Marty involved as right, well, right. and then you put that all together, and then the that moment in the band's journey as well, right. that's just magic. Yeah, it was. It was, and... You know, it was such an incredible concert because every one of the guests kind of rose to the occasion on a level that was, whether it was Joni Mitchell singing Coyote or, or Van Morrison, you know, singing Caravan or, you know, Muddy Waters singing Manish Boy. I mean, everybody rose to the occasion. They knew it was a very special night and Bob was incredible. Uh, I mean, the whole thing, it couldn't have been any better. There's no way you could have made it any better. And was it difficult to capture the, the sound and visuals of a concert as opposed to, a, you know, a standard film? Well, Marty's idea was that you had to have seven cameras, which was a lot, and that 
each cameraman had to try and capture a very specific thing. So when there was going to be a guitar solo, you had to make sure there was a cameraman on the guitar player. You know, when there was an organ solo, there had to be someone there. And so it led to some funny, interesting things because the cameramen all had to wear headphones like you're wearing. So Marty could tell them where to shoot. And one of the cameramen named Laszlo Kovacs, who was a very famous cinematographer, just got tired of listening to Marty talk to him. And he took his headphones off. And it ended up being the, the luckiest thing that ever happened because, because they were shooting 35 millimeter film, they had to decide what songs they wouldn't record. So everyone could shut down, change magazines, and get ready to go again. And so Marty had, Marty Waters had not been there for the rehearsal. So Marty didn't know that Manish Boy was I'm a man. <laughs> and so he had picked to shoot Caledonia, which was the other song that Muddy was doing. And as soon as the first three beats start, <laughs> Marty goes, oh, my fuck. Yeah. We got to shoot this. And of course, everyone, it seemed like everyone had stopped and we're changing magazine, except Laszlo Kovacs, wow. who's up on the front corner of the stage shooting. And if you watch the film, you will see that there is only one camera angle for the first three minutes of the film. <laughs> and that's Laszlo. And, and ex- literally five seconds before he ran out of film, Vilmo Sigmund, who had the wide shot, comes back on and saves the day. So we had the whole thing on film. It was really, but it was a miracle. (laughs) Wow. These stories are just small parts of what is a a remarkable book of of your life and uh, American culture in really is a time that certainly in terms of the the rock and roll idiom and to a certain extent film idiom will will never be matched. And it's a fantastic document of those times. And yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been such a pleasure to My talk pleasure. to you. And it's like we've only just got started, totally. but then I guess that's why people need to go out and get your book, Great. The Magic Years. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. All right, all the best. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything gonna be all right this morning Oh yeah Woo! Now when I was a young boy At the age of five My mother said I'm gonna be the greatest man alive But now I'm a man Way past 21 I want to leave me woman I have lots of fun I'm a man I'll spell him
rather than me No be No Oh child Why That mean manish boy I'm a full-grown man Man I'm a natural-born lover's man Man I'm a rolling stone Man I'm a hoochie-coochie man Sitting on the outside Just me, my mate You know I'm made to boot, honey Come up two hours late Wasn't that a man? Yeah! I spell him A child And That rubber thing I'm grown Man, 
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.